Hi everyone, this is your host, Julia Glotz. Welcome back to the Digital Shelfcast, where we discuss how growth-driven CPGs can win in e-commerce at speed and scale. Every episode, I'm speaking with industry experts about the latest trends and challenges on the digital shelf and how you can accelerate your growth online. Make sure you subscribe today so you don't miss out on any of our insight-packed episodes. Thanks for spending time with me today. Let's jump straight in. Hello, and welcome to the Digital Shelfcast. It's great to have you with us. In one way or another, brands are always looking for growth, whether it's bringing in new shoppers, expanding into new channels, tapping into new occasions, or trading people up to new premium options. Growth is always high on the agenda. But finding growth in the current climate is far from easy. Inflation has created enormous challenges for brands. As concerns about the cost of living have increased in many markets, how and where shoppers shop has changed dramatically. And that's not all. How shoppers feel about brands and how loyal they are to those brands has also changed significantly. Recent Cantor data for the UK grocery market suggests sales of value tier private label ranges are up 41% year on year, and private label is gaining ground in many other markets as well. Finding growth under those circumstances is a tall order, but my guest for today's episode knows how to help. Gareth Turner is a CPG marketing veteran who has held senior positions at major brands such as Heineken, Arla, and Weetabix, and he is now the founder of Big Black Door, a strategic marketing consultancy. Gareth is an expert in driving growth for brands, so I'm very excited to talk to him and find out what practical steps brands can take right now to continue to grow, even in those very challenging market conditions. Gareth, welcome. Thank you for coming on the show. Veteran, how dare, how dare you? <laughs> I was going to say thanks for having me on, but thank you, Julia. Extensive experience is what we're going for here. <laughs> Before we dive into today's topic, we'll start the episode the way we start every episode here at the Digital Shelfcast, by quizzing our guest on their own online shopping habits. So Gareth, tell us about the last thing you bought online and whether there was anything that stood out to you about the shopping experience. Well, I mean, I've been buying my groceries online since before the, the pandemic. I was I was all in there and that helps me no end getting, getting stuff delivered during the pandemic. But the last thing I bought online was some coffee from North Star Coffee Roasters. They're uh, uh, based in Leeds. They're based in Leeds as well. They're local to me. I love their coffee. I love their sustainability, their ethics, their design, the recyclability of their packaging. And it seems to me that they have really flourished during and since lockdown. I went all in with them during lockdown. What I like about that shopping experience specifically, especially, is how easy it is for me a creature of habit just to reorder what i ordered before Mm. so uh, they've made it very easy i order five bags at a time i can order loads of different stuff i choose exactly the same stuff every time but uh, it's great coffee great backstory great design easy to use website what more can you ask Fantastic. Now, in my introduction, I described your business as a strategic marketing consultancy. That can mean quite a lot of different things to different people. So I wonder if you could give us a bit of a taste of the kind of work you do at Big Black Door. I mean, I've been lucky. I've been lucky in my career that I've worked at some of those brands that you talked about. And in those big household name businesses, you 
get bags of experience with big budgets and you get trained. And so I've got that training. I've got that experience. I've made loads of mistakes. I've learned along the way. And I'm now able to bring that experience, bring that training to help smaller scaling brands, to help them to grow, to cut through the complexity and the BS that uh, helps them get to great, well-grounded, practical growth plans that stops them making rookie mistakes because they, of all people, can afford it less than uh, than these big brands where I've where I have made all those mistakes already. And is there a typical big black door client? You talked about scaling businesses, but what situation do they typically find themselves in? What challenges are they facing that makes them go, "Oh, we better talk to Gareth about this." I've been very lucky to have worked with a number of of great brands since uh, since setting up my business. I suppose the the absolute epicenter of what I do is in the in the brands I've worked in. I've worked in food and drink FMCG brands. And I think those skills are transferable. I mean, I, that's the wheelhouse center of my wheelhouse to use that phrase and, and I have more immediate impacts with those sort of clients. But I've worked with audiobook clients, I've worked with large international charities, worked with distilleries, all sorts of different clients. But they all have a, a similar need when I was, I was thinking about this. And that need is they just need to start doing their marketing properly. And that sounds a big sort of grand, a grand thing. That could be because they're scaling and it's no longer good enough for them to sort of kick and scramble their way, their way through. They need their spend to be efficient and effective as they're looking to, to scale. Or they need their team to be set up in, in the right way. Or it might be that there's a larger brand who has got a blockage. They just need that fresh pair of eyes. This is all still about seeing that problem and getting a good, robust marketing plan in place. Because the majority of the brands I'm, I'm dealing with are, are challenger brands, and they just don't have those huge budgets that, uh, that I had and that, uh, that other, people, other people have got. So we help them get to that practical to-do list as efficiently as we can. You know, we, might, we might not do the big £100,000 piece of research for a scaling brand. That's not appropriate for them, but I can take the knowledge I've gained on doing number numerous ones of those over the years, and we can, let's be honest, we can we can make a few shortcuts, you know, in in full knowledge and full transparency, to help people get to a perfectly good enough a PGE approach, perfectly good enough for the size of brand they are. And it all ties back to this point around unlocking growth and and helping brands grow under those difficult circumstances. What does your personal approach to growth? look like? Do you have a specific framework that you use with clients or a set of steps that you would take clients through? One of my mantras here that is it's very easy to overcomplicate marketing. And there are plenty of people who are building careers on the premise of it being complicated. They, 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 they take pride in overcomplicating it. The simple truth is, I think if you go back to the, the Bible, How Brands Grow by Ehrenberg Bass, you go back to that you can pretty much boil it down to one thing, which is, I think, getting more people to buy your brand tomorrow than we're buying it today. That can be quite complicated, but that's my job to take that complexity into the background and sift that. I will, I'll deal with that complexity. I'm like a, a duck paddling away under the surface here. I hope to be elegant on the surface and to share some practical, practical solutions uh, to to get to the brand growth. But if you take that How Brands Grow book, 
and how to how do I get more people to buy my product tomorrow than we're buying it today? Well, there are three things pretty much you can do, which is you can make your brand easy to think of, easy to find, and easy to buy. So just do those, just do those three things, and you can uh, you have a, a pretty good chance of, of growing your brand, improving those three things. And broadly, that translates into mental and physical availability in in the how brands grow. But but in, in that simple practical language, even the most inexperienced marketeer, the most inexperienced person can understand. Okay, that makes that makes intuitive sense. That a brand that's easy to think of is going to be easier to yeah, easier to grow. We'll sell more of it than uh, than other brands. Absolutely. And how would you say that approach is different to what brands may be used to from other agencies and consultancies? You talked about that tendency to overcomplicate marketing. Is is that the main point of difference? Or are there other areas where you think you are uh, pushing brands in a slightly different direction to what they might be used to from others? The truth is, Judith, that there are hundreds of people, thousands of people doing doing the same as me, right? Let's let's not, I'm not going to pretend that I've got any sort of magic wands that other people haven't got and some of them are pretty good i know some of them some of them are pretty good i'm not gonna tell you who they are there what i bring though and what my business brings is that experience so between us uh, we've got over half a century of brand marketing leadership in a number of different businesses from scaling brands to big household name top 10 fmcg brands we've got that balance of, of that experience and pragmatism so balancing the real world with this textbook approach. And I hope I've just sort of demonstrated some of that, that idea of ease to think of, find and buy. Well, that's translating a textbook into language that hopefully a sales force could understand or that the, uh, the, the team on the production line can understand. And getting the business galvanized behind that is, uh, is good. There's that straightforwardness, I think. And um, I don't know, life's too short for politics and, and nonsense. So uh, we, we just cut through that shizzle and uh, and get to some practical solutions pretty quickly, we hope. Fantastic. Now, market conditions right now are really, really tricky for brands, especially challenger brands in many ways. What's your advice for how brands can hold their own given all the challenges around inflation and the cost of living and lots of growing competition from private label? That's the million the million dollar question. I've got literally multi-million dollar mm-hmm. question. Again, this is a, this is where I, I temper the textbook with with the practicalities of it. So the textbook would say there was a, a great article in way back in 20, 2010, 2010 from in the Harvard Business Review in a book was the um, article was called Roaring Out of Out of Recession, not Succession, Roaring Out of Recession. And that talks about investing to grow grow your brand. You know, the, the, the brands that come out strongest out of a recession other brands that continued to invest. But there's a pragmatism here that a CFO, if you have it, if you're lucky enough to have a CFO, yeah, yeah, great Gareth. Thanks for that. I, I, I understand the textbook tells me that. You just lose a million pounds from your budget. So there's a practicality of, well, where do you do that? And you, you trim costs in the right places. You trim your non-working spend, so money that isn't activating for, for consumers. You get rid of any nice to do projects, but you, you protect at all costs your brand building activity. You keep an eye on yeah, what, what's going on with your brand. You, the, the, the reason you have to keep that brand building activity going on is you need to give people an emotional reason or more reasons to buy your brand, an emotional, at best, an emotional reason to buy your brand. So you're not getting dragged into this price war. 
So that could be, yeah, think, think of sort of Cravendale, for example. Cravendale, when I worked uh, at Arla, that's a, that's a brand that's double the price. So Cravendale is, I forget the pricing now, but yeah, roughly double the price of standard fresh milk. And the idea is it's filtered to last longer. Well, yeah, that's, that's a benefit that most people who buy Cravendale could trip off their tongue. So people have been given a reason, something tangible to hold on to that um, means that it's, it's worth paying more for. So keeping your brand salient, keeping your brand salient for a thing, but understanding where your sales are going to and coming from. So if you are seeing, if you look at your sales data and you are seeing some decline, where do you know that that volume is going to private label? Or is it the people just cutting down? Where are you getting people coming in? Are you, are you losing some out to private label? But then are you then seeing people coming in to you, trading down from in for food? Are people premium food that you might buy in, in, in the grocery store? People might be trading down from eating out into buying you know, taste of difference range in, in Sainsbury's, for example. So you know, what's the source of your one volume and, the, and where's, where's your lost volume going to? So again, just going back to that model, thinking about, well, how are you going to get more people to buy into your brand? Is it to make it easier to think of? Is it easier to find or is it easier to buy? So the suggestion here is that if people are moving to private label, that it's, it's probably a combination of easier to find and easier to buy. It's easy to buy because it might be at a cheaper price, but easy to find because it might be more ubiquitous in, in the store. When you put your head in that game, when, you, when, you, when, you know, when you're playing by those rules, what do you need to do to grow your brand or protect your brand against, uh, against other people. And, and that the idea of, of discounting is something that you know, as a brand that, that doesn't sit easy to, to compete on price, but there are, um, it's not, it's not something I'm, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't be advocating that you should be, one should be protecting the value in your brand. But I notice when my categories, alcohol, some brands are value engineering at the moment. So I saw, I think recently in marketing week that Foster's has, has knocked off some ABV, but protecting the RSP. Use three, three acronyms there, but yeah, they're protecting that they're they're holding the price, the shelf price to to consumers, and they're propping up the, the profitability by uh, reducing the alcohol, which is a duty uh, to the government. So I don't know how much of that is being shared with the retailers, but there'll be an element of that which uh, those two those two parties in that three way. Um, relationship, those two parties, the retailer and the supplier are are protected. And I suppose just sort of linking that back to a point you made earlier, it's about, I suppose, questioning some of those narratives around what's happening in the wider market and really looking at whether that is true for me and my own brand. You know, there might be a lots of media coverage about people trading down to own label, but is that actually true for what's happening with with my brand? Taking that uh, sort of slightly more granular approach rather than just assuming those broad truths are true for everyone. Yeah, because they're they're averages, aren't they? Right. That's um, and so there'll be winners, there'll be winners and losers, and there'll be many brands that that are winning right now. So yeah, absolutely right. Just um, you know, what, what's going on for me? my brand rather than the big picture that's being peddled out in in on the news at 10. Aside from an ability to look beyond those quite broad narratives, what are the smartest brands getting right about growth right now? Those brands that, you know, as you just mentioned, that are still winning, what are they doing that others aren't? I think there, there are plenty of brands that 
are growing at the moment. And yeah, I was I was looking at some scaling brands that are that are growing. I'm working with a brand called the Source Shop, based in Nottingham. Amazing sources, if uh, if you're in the market for sources, I think they're a great example. What are they doing? They're emphasising their quality. They're talking about a point of difference. They're distinctive. They're differentiated. They might not be doing too many communications, but they they did a they got a great PR machine there, and they're they're working uh, on the brand. They did they were on the uh, Gordon Ramsay um, sort of food apprentice. Uh, thing recently is there was a source episode so they're they are talking about their attention to detail their quality their building trust and certainty and consistency and a great brand reputation these are all things that people want i think then once you've won the sale having incredible customer service consistent reliable product quality so that people don't feel they're ever going to be let down having great relationships with retailers to um, help the retailer grow or protect their category value and having the ability to monitor and adapt your tactics i think so not having this this is where smaller brands do very well is the ability to be agile and and nimble when when needed i think um your larger brands in bigger organizations take a longer time to turn that that oil tanker around so for me some of these probably nimbler more agile but growing brands are are doing you often talk about the importance of visibility and awareness as well and particularly for brands that are looking to to drive growth why are those two so important and what are some practical steps brands can do to boost awareness other than perhaps doing some clever pr and finding yourself on a on a gordon ramsay episode (laughs) But I mean that that that's great. They, but it's a good example. Yeah, it's a great yeah. example they, of, of of pushing hard. But there are there are plenty of people out there. They'll I'm, I'm often in a little LinkedIn bubble, right? So I, I'm slightly difficult for me to step step away from that. But there are plenty of serial brands out there, for example, who are doing a great PR job at the moment. They've got no distribution, but um, they're uh, they're doing a good PR job. I, one would suggest they're perhaps pushing for distribution with some of the PR activities they're uh, they're doing. Uh, right now but i suppose if you go back to those three steps so you know why is uh, awareness and visibility important because that's making your brand easy to think of and easy to find in store so if your brand is unknown to a shopper and they see you in store it's unlikely you're going to win that sale because you know, there, there needs to be a kind of recognition of think, oh okay i'll give that i'll give that a go to, to grossly oversimplify here so you're unlikely to win the purchase if there's no awareness so i think focusing on generating scale awareness as big as your budget will allow for as many of your category buyers as possible that should be a priority for more people from for, for the majority of brands sorry and that was even a priority for us at Weetabix so we had 98 percent prompted awareness and we're still focused on maintaining that level of awareness because that was so important for us but then the key differentiator for us was this visibility in store and when we did some activity with the football association to put players on the front of pack and uh, did an in-store promotion. That was about generating visibility in store rather than necessarily the on-pack promotion. So by putting Harry Kane and, and the players on the front of pack during the Euros, that gave us um, front of store visibility and it, well, it, it grew our visibility in store by 300%. And as, as a result, in that six month period, we put two percentage points of penetration on. So it wasn't, the, the awareness didn't change, our pricing didn't change, it was just the visibility in store that changed. So, and that that was great. That was a you know that was a significant 
seven-figure deal with uh, with with a, one of the biggest sporting properties on the planet. Not everyone can afford that, but you but you can think about visibility in store. So you can think about is my packaging singing and leaping you know, visible on a shelf? Is my SRP working on shelf? And like I'm talking here about the physical stores. What am I doing digitally? Given this podcast, what am I doing with people like um, sort of Dunhumby, uh, Citrus? I think they're called now Critio. When I was doing it at Weetabix, what am I doing with them to maximise my visibility in in quotey marks store? That's very very important because in several categories that I've worked in, when you track brand awareness and you and Mill Brown it asks what the what's the driver. Where did you hear about this thing? Where did you get you know, total brand communications awareness, the source of awareness? In most of the categories I've worked in, the number one driver of, of communication awareness was in store, not TV. And I've been, there have been brands that have been heavy on TV. Weetabix was on TV 52 weeks a year. Um, but in store communications was the key driver of brand awareness, of, of communications awareness. So it supports just how important it is to get get that right and so if you're a scaling brand you need to think need to be more agile a bit more nimble can you do brand partnerships with somebody else can you get a field sales team to do some uh, some some fsdus or mus in the in the front of store can you work with the store managers to it takes a bit more effort if you, to, to to get it away but uh, you can't get it all done at head office so um, it can be done but uh it's perhaps a bit trickier and you just mentioned that obviously we are the digital shelf cast, so we're really interested in uh, growing on and optimizing for the digital shelf specifically. And you just touched on the fact that um, obviously having good visibility on the digital shelf is absolutely critical if you're looking to drive growth. How do these considerations around the digital shelf and around e-commerce typically show up in the work you do for your clients? Is there a difference, for example, in how you approach digital media channels versus more traditional media? Each channel needs to be approached with the ambition to get the best work, the most appropriate work on that channel. There's a great um, presentation from Cannes this year. Um, not invited. Uh, I watched it on, on playback. If, uh, if anyone's listening, wants to invite me next year. With Tom Roach, Grace Kite and Les Binet, uh, and they were talking about the attention economy. They talked about like how different channels have different levels of attention. And Tom Roach talked about the normal narrative arc of a TV ad being quite sort of, you know, just one arc but in a youtube ad for example you have several it's, it's much more volatile you need to get your branding in at different points it's you need a different it's not the classic three-part story of um you know you can get away with in a, in a tv commercial it's, it's different so using the right tool for a job i think is uh, is important and the same then goes for the digital shelf the you can't just take your tv ad and put it on youtube and you can't just take your in-store point of sale and stick it on the digital shelf you need to get some experts in you need to know what works for um for those those media channels and 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 do it do it properly it's i think tom talks about it's a different grammar that you have in, in different channels and so you need to learn that grammar grammar and you need to lean into it so yeah so i think uh, i think in in terms of the, the the digital shelf the job for most brands is to work out how they can reach as many of their category buyers as they possibly can for as long as they possibly can and the digital shelf is a very important way of doing that as certainly after during lockdown the growth of online sales that makes that even more even more important and getting that getting that balance right between 
long-term brand building and shorter-term performance marketing, the top and the bottom of the funnel, getting that getting that balance right, certainly for scaling um, smaller brands is uh, is very important. And the digital shelf should form a a decent chunk of your um, of your budget if you're an FMCG um, scaling brand. How do you recommend brands approach measurement and tracking? when it comes to their marketing investment. I remember you mentioned a little bit earlier, you know, it's so important for brands in the current climate to really take a differentiated view at where they're spending, what they're spending their money on and saying, actually, am I getting enough bang for my buck? So what have you seen work well in terms of measurement and tracking? What's perhaps not a particularly good use of money at the moment? Well, I mean, ultimately, the, the ultimate KPI, the K of KPIs, is sales so there'll be no long term if the short term isn't isn't taken care of with with certainly with scaling brands so we have to look at that and what is it that's that's driving sales and there are a number of ways of of doing that so i think there are two two textbook pieces of measurement that i would have in place for any brand i work on or have worked on i'd have some sort of brand tracker which is talking which is measuring the perceptions and the awareness of my brands. I'll be measuring awareness. What are people, how, how often are people claiming to have purchased my product? What's a claimed penetration? What are people saying about my, my brand in relation to its competitive set? To set that up, I'd need to know what the key category drivers are, what the category entry points to use the How Brands Grow book. What are the category entry points for the category I'm working in? So for lager, it might be refreshment for many foods. It's taste. So, what are people are people saying? I'm tasty in that um, in that example. So, there's a, a brand track, and I'd probably put that in place before I've done any comms, so that I know where what my baseline is and, and whether the things I'm doing are, are nudging that forward. That's thing one. And then the second would be some sort of um, market mix modelling. That's expensive, but you can do a kind of Heath Robinson rudimentary market mix modeling to have a look at it by isolating some geographies or some times or some media you need to just separate a variable and look at how the sales were affected in that separated area so for example we've done some work with one of my clients looking at their rate of sale in a couple of cities where we turn some media on so we turn that media on and the rate of sale was 72 percent higher than it was in the control cities Okay, that sounds like a good thing to, to double down on now. So you might you might expand it out into more cities, or you might expand it out into another media channel, or um, you might expand it out to a longer period of time. So there are you can isolate these variables. Now, market mix modeling and brand tracking, if you go to the ubiquities and the Cantar Mill Browns of this world, that's you know, that's hundreds of thousands of pounds that, that can be. But there are some perfectly good enough ways of doing that. Not not as robust and not as um, beautifully crafted without, without as many beautiful presentations, but there are a number of ways we can track that for scaling brands. And I'll set those up for you know a few thousand pounds for, for clients. So it's it, it can be done. I recognise a few thousand pounds for some clients is still a lot of money. So it, it can be done. You can probably do it yourself if you've got um, the time and the uh, and a bit of the know-how. What are some blind spots that you find brands 
are likely to have when it comes to growth? Are there opportunities they tend to miss or are there particular areas they're perhaps not paying enough attention to? I suppose it'd be about getting caught in the tactics, not the strategy. So not looking at the long term, getting fixated only on the short term. There's a balance here. Like I said, there's no, there'll be no short term if, sorry, there'll be no long term if the short term isn't good. But the classic IPA paper called uh, The Long and the Short of It, it's not The Long or the Short of It by Field and Binet. And that, that combination of the two makes your short term marketing more effective. So having an eye on the strategy, knowing what the strategy is, and then making sure that everything you do is pulling in the same the same direction, not getting distracted. A, you know, a slightly made up example would be when TikTok launched, maybe it's threads now, but when TikTok launched, I'd have a number of people coming to me, you need to be on, you need to be on uh, TikTok, Gareth. Why? Why do I need to be on TikTok? It, is my audience on TikTok? Well, everyone's on TikTok. Look at, look at, look at the dancing videos you can make. It's all interesting, but that's not grounded in an understanding of my, of my shopper and my, my target audience. So bringing everything back to an understanding of my target audience and how I'm going to help them to f- be aware, to think of me, to find me and to buy me, rather than a tactic, which is there's this new thing called TikTok, or this new thing called Threads. That's not, that's not a strategic approach to brand building. Which brings me nicely to um, a few trends and industry talking points that I was keen to also get your your take on. And when we're talking about very buzzy uh, things such as uh, threats, I guess a, a few months ago it was the metaverse. Now everyone's talking about generative AI. And it, it's obviously something that brands are thinking about and they're wondering, what does it mean for me? What does it mean for my marketing? What are some of the opportunities? What are some of the risks? Um, what is your take on it? And how do you encourage your clients to think about you know, emerging technologies like generative AI or, you know, as you said, emerging new social platforms in a way that is um, structured and measured as opposed to driven by by hype. So the, met- the metaverse is, is, is interesting, right? So it's about, for me, are my audience there? Unless you're trying to create something, that, unless there's another reason for doing it. So as long as there's a strategic reason for using that channel, then I suggest you you don't do it or you're doing it for, in the full knowledge, this is a test and learn, an experiment thing, which potentially has no bearing on what my sales are going to be. And for most brands, that's a luxury, right? So, but some brands, you, your classic sort of Diageo's, Heineken's of the world will be on the metaverse because it keeps them at the forefront of being cutting edge marketeers. And that suits them when they're trying to recruit people, for example. So there's another reason for, for doing that. But for me, I'd, I'd bring it all the way back to strategy, certainly in media channels. How am I going to make my brand easier to think of, find and buy? And can this thing achieve that better for me than the stuff I'm already doing? And you might do a quick test and learn and, uh, and see how that works. But for, for marketeers with things like generative AI, I think it's very important for marketeers to be aware of it, to, to perhaps use it as a starting point where a human can add a bit less value, perhaps, or as a sparring partner for um, when you're a, a one-person band. So I've used Midjourney quite a bit to help me bring concepts to life. When we're putting some concepts into research, rather than have a an illustrator uh, in the concept groups, I can quickly get to some, for me, good enough, perfectly good enough um, solutions to get some concepts visualised for my clients. 
I have used ChatGPT to help me brainstorm on my own as a sparring partner. I hosted a stage at the um, Digital Marketing World Forum recently, and one of the guys on, on that stage uh, likened AI to a good intern. He said, a great intern, they, they, they do great work. There's some, they do great stuff, but you wouldn't put it in front of the CEO without checking it first. I thought that was a great, a great way of sort of summarizing it, that you'd, you'd want to check the stuff first. You know, I, I can't tell you, but there's a, I've, I've seen copy written before. I thought, I think that's been written by AI. I can't quite tell you why I know that, but there's a, there's a sort of, well, there's, for starters, there's a few Zs in there where it should be Ss in England. Um, <laughs> but there's, there's just a feel to it that you can tell. But it's a good starting point, but it doesn't stop the need for for me as if I want to be if I want to write some thought leadership work, I need to write some thought leadership work. I can't just let AI do it for me. Gareth, we're pretty much out of time, but finally, in a sentence or two, if you had to sum up your one essential piece of advice for brands who are looking to continue to drive growth in the current climate, what would that be? I think you could probably have a guess uh, at this that. You could do a lot worse than keep it simple by making a brand easy to think of, easy to find and easy to buy. And remember that there are plenty of people out there with a vested interest in making this thing seem more complicated than it really is. Fantastic. Gareth, what's a good way for people to connect with you? Where can they find you? Threads, obviously, threads. They can find me on, <laughs> they can actually find me on threads. I signed up that morning. The reality is the best place to find me would be a slightly boring middle-aged LinkedIn. Gareth A. Turner or a website, bigblackdoor.com. Most of my ramblings are on there. Fantastic. Gareth, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Digital Shelfcast. We hope you enjoyed the discussion and got some useful tips for how to navigate your brand's success on the digital shelf. If you enjoyed the show, we'd also appreciate it if you could give us a rating and leave a review. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.